This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. I am the kind of person who tends to think that everything is my fault. If someone is upset, I wonder what I might have done to upset them. If a client isn't happy, I conclude that I didn't work hard enough to please them. And if the Mets are losing at the bottom of the ninth, I believe that it is inevitably because I am watching them. I find that when I watch sports events on television, this feeling can be so pervasive that I have to get up and leave the room so that my preferred team can have a reasonable chance to catch up. I think that my sense of being intrinsically at fault was best evidenced during the 2003 East Coast blackout. At the time, I was visiting Boston, where the lights remained on. One of my reactions upon hearing about the situation was relief that I wasn't home in New York when it happened. But I didn't experience this relief because I had electricity. Rather, it was because I could not possibly be held responsible for the five-state blowout because I had been blow-drying my hair with the air conditioner on. For most of my life, I thought nothing of the psychological impediment. It is only in the last few years that colleagues and loved ones began to suggest that I reconsider this highly narcissistic view of the world. The biggest obstacle to facing this was finding myself in love with a man that, despite professing undying love for me, seemed to find fault with almost everything I did. He told me that I slouched when I walked, I made too much noise when I ate, I didn't drink the right cocktails, my wardrobe was matronly, my shoes were cheap, and I even clapped too loud in a jazz bar. I did everything I possibly could to change myself. I bought new clothes and shoes, practiced eating with my mouth closed. I even hired a dog trainer to help me tame what he claimed were disobedient dogs. Since I thought this man was smarter than me, and since I already believed that I was at fault for everything that went wrong around me, I assumed he was seeing the world, and me, more accurately than I was. And what an accomplishment it would be if I could finally, at long last, fix all my flaws. After a year and a half, I gave up. I was exhausted and bleary-eyed and downright depressed. I was also embarrassed. I still believed that this man was smarter and more sophisticated and erudite than I was. And not only was I sure that his criticisms of me were accurate, I was fearful that everyone that knew us both, especially the really intelligent ones, would shirk away from me and pity the poor girl that let the smart boy get away. According to Jerome Siegel in his wonderful book, Graceful Simplicity, nearly everybody perceives themselves through the norms of culture. This is why most people consume whatever the marketplace touts without a second thought. The basic self-esteem of the individual is defined by the consumptive norms of society and of others. Hence, 
What is outside of them forms their self-identity and their personal norms for behavior, consuming not only products and services, but values of worth and self-esteem. Self-esteem is a complicated and fascinating subject, and it is also unavoidable. What I have since learned is this. People decide on their own attitudes and feelings from observing themselves behave in various situations. This is especially true when internal cues are so weak or confusing, they effectively put the person in the same position as an external observer. But Freudian psychology suggests that self-perception is, is an illusion of the ego and cannot be trusted to decide what is, in fact, real. Such natures and questions are continuously reanimated as people grapple with the idea and the nature of existence. The questions remain. Do our perceptions allow us to experience the world as it really is? Can we ever know another point of view in the way we know our own? My hard thought answer is this. I don't know. In retrospect, I think my holding the world so close and imagining everything going wrong as my fault was my way of exercising a wish of control. In other words, the harder I worked, the more things would be good and safe and comfortable. Most recently, I've become captivated by the tension between the perfect and the imperfect the murky matter in between, I am beginning to believe that both intrinsically depend on each other, they feed off each other, and in the magical place where they balance, something resides that just might be considered art. Or perhaps, explained with a tad less grandiosity, it is just something you can learn from. Last weekend, now several years since my breakup with the critical boyfriend, I had brunch with a good friend of mine. Over our meal, she mentioned to me that an incredibly smart and successful mutual acquaintance of ours had asked her if the man and I were still together. When she told me this, I immediately concluded that he was asking because he felt sorry for me and my romantic travails. When I sheepishly asked what his response was, she laughed and told me that despite being a very, a very happily married man, he was so concerned for me during the relationship that he had considered trying to rescue me. I laughed in relief and gratitude and gleefully floated home. But my moment of vanity was short-lived. A few days later, as I was walking to my office, a haunting and familiar headline jumped out at me as I passed an ad on a telephone kiosk. It read, You could have kept the blackout of 2003 from happening. I inched closer and finished reading the copy. In much smaller type, the sentence continued, with the amount of energy wasted by non-AMD powered servers. And for one brief and blissfully perfect second, I rejoiced in the fact that the message was not referring to me and my blow dryer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. My guest today is the extraordinary Ed Fella. Before we get started with today's interview, please let me tell you a little bit more about him. Edward Fella is an artist and a graphic designer whose work has had an important influence on contemporary typography here and in Europe. He practiced professionally as a commercial artist in Detroit for 30 years before receiving a master's degree in design from the Cranbrook Academy of Art in 1987. 
He has since devoted his time to teaching, and his own unique self-published work has appeared in many design publications and anthologies. In 1997, he received the Chrysler Award, and in 1999, an honorary doctorate from CCS in Detroit. His work is in the National Design Museum and MoMA in New York. Princeton Architectural Press published a book of his photographs and lettering, Letters on America, in 2000. And he was a finalist for the National Design Award in 2001. And we have him here on Design Matters. Listen wherever you are. 24-hour business and financial news. Solid, focused, and informed. The leader in business talk. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. And now, Voices of Design, a documentary series brought to you by Adobe Systems. The Voices of Design series brings together different voices from the design community to share and exchange ideas on various topics. Today's show features a three-part discussion focused on the topic of sustainability. This is part one. Enjoy. What is sustainability, and what does it mean to the design community? Let's listen to what the designers at the Compost Modern 2006 conference have to say on this topic in Adobe's Voices of Design series. Here is Phil Hamlet, Chairman, AIGA Environmental Committee. The definition of sustainability that I like to use is quite simple. It's basically leave the place in better shape than you found it. Scott Summit. Summit ID. Sustainability is particularly elusive, especially in industrial design, and that's one of the main reasons I'm here is to try to get a handle on what it means and just how it applies to what I do every day and what I can impart to my clients. Mark Willard, IDO. The pressure is on, and whoever solves it in a more sustainable and desirable way is ahead of the game and, and is what whether people sort of consciously or subconsciously know it, it's, it's definitely what we need. You have been listening to the Voices of Design series brought to you by Adobe Systems. Hi, I'm Daryl and Reith of Campbell Soup Company, and I'm excited to invite you to the Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design event this April in New York City. Join me in discussing the power of research and design as they come together in a strategic huddle to drive the Campbell's Chunky brand into the end zone. Plus, Hear from design gurus Rem Kulhas and Philip Stark, as well as brand leaders from Method, Nike, and Target, who will discuss how synergistic strategy and design drive brand innovation, consumer loyalty, and profitability. For more information, call 888-670-8200, visit www.iirusa.com forward slash BIPD, or email register at iirusa.com. Mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters and receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Rise to the challenge. See you in New York City on April 24th through the 26th at the Waldorf Astoria. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back, listeners. Sorry about our little bit of technical difficulties. 
Uh, I'd like to let you know you're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the designer and educator, Ed Fella. And I actually have Ed on the line. So, Ed, Hello. welcome. Can you hear me this time? <laughs> Absolutely. I can hear you loud right. and clear. So, All the switches um, are gone, right? Yeah, well, you know, everything, anything and everything can happen in live radio. That's right. <laughs> especially on the Internet. Yes, especially. I should have expected it. That's why I'm not computer uh, literate or even. <laughs> well, I can understand. That always happens to me. The minute I do something, it goes away or crashes or disappears. I don't yeah. know what happens. Well, as long as I have so you. It's again. ironic the same thing would happen right this minute. Well, I have really, really bad technological karma also. Hello? So I'm here. So, Ed, in your book, Hello? Letters... I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> We're going to be Don't totally insecure. Bad again. <laughs> We're going to be totally insecure for this entire show. Every time there's a pause, we're going to be like, Ed, yeah. Debbie, Ed, Debbie. Maybe you should have some background music. <laughs> okay. Well, um, um, let me ask you a question. Yeah, um, in your In your marvelous book, Letters on America, uh, Lorraine Wilde describes your work in the following way. And this is what she says. This is a quote from the book. Edfella's work spirals out from inside the conventions of commercial art and design to its borderlines and then stops just at the edges or straddles the fence between whatever separates design from something else. How would you describe your work? Yeah, she just did perfectly. Well, but, uh, <laughs> you give me a little bit more. Give me a little bit more. Well, it, it's, uh, you know, um, my my background is in commercial art, right? I'm, if you... If you uh, would have started in the beginning, with my beginning. Yeah. It would all explain itself because it comes out of my own kind of history and experience and the culture that I uh, um, developed in and matured in. I always say that I'm a designer artist from the uh, middle of the last century. So, mm -hmm. you know, I came of age in the mid-50s, uh, went to a technical high school and learned commercial art. Um, in a very sophisticated way because it happened to be the Bauhaus uh, ideology and foundation course and a lot of uh, European art history. And um, then I went to work at 18 as a commercial artist in the Detroit advertising business. So, and then I got involved with, you know, what's called commercial art. Mm -hmm. And so my work comes out of those conventions, I guess, of commercial art and those conventions of fine art, um, especially the you know, European experimental formalism that constituted the Bauhaus and the various modern art movements up until the 50s. Now, in every bio I read about you, you very specifically refer to yourself as a commercial artist. Yeah. Do you see being a commercial artist fundamentally different than being a graphic designer? No, it's just that back in the 50s, the term commercial artist was still the prevailing term. So um, graphic design wasn't really used. Uh, even though the term existed, but it wasn't it wasn't generally used. So if you did graphic design, you were called a layout uh, man or layout person. <laughs> Paste up artist. In those cases, it actually was they were all men, so they were layout. And uh, even the Bauhaus used the term layout for graphic design. So and then in the '60s, you know, when the term graphic design came up, then commercial art kind of became this you know idiosyncratic, unschooled trade kind of thing. Uh, you know, modernism, American modernism, Paul Rand, people like that, you know, reacted against this kind of unschooled uh, commercial art. And so uh, 
postmodernism, you know, I, I wanted to reclaim it. Uh, and also, when you think about it, it's a really cool word because, it, it, uh, you know, graphic design doesn't call you an artist. Right. Commercial art, uh, you're still an artist, right? Even right. though you're, it's obviously that you're a commercial artist, painted by, uh, you know, commodity culture and commercialism, but you're still an artist. Right. No, I actually, I actually well, prefer I like the, term. the term. I do, too. I do, too. I think that it, it, it perfectly describes in many ways what we do because we are, I do believe that, that graphic design in and of itself is, is a type of fine art. Um, and a lot of people disagree with me about that, but I do feel that it is an art that is fundamentally meant to sell something. Um, yeah, that's the whole thing. It's, when you say a type of fine art, it is—it's art. Uh, right. Art, uh, fine art is a type of art. Commercial art is a type of art. Uh, you know, th so that's the whole thing about fine art. It isn't a given. It's just a cultural construct, the same as commercial art. So I have this bumper sticker that I did years ago that uh, that uh, art is an ethnocentric cultural construct that you don't got to have. Um, art is an ethnocentric construct. Anyway. And it was a reaction to a Detroit Institute of the Arts bumper sticker that said you've got to have art. So this <laughs> idea that art is a given uh, isn't really true. It's a construct just like commercial art is. Well, do you feel that art is a given? No. I mean, art is a given period, right? So mm -hmm. whether it's commercial art, fine art, uh, uh, you know, the art of cooking, you know, mm -hmm. it's, just, it's just a way to describe something, right? Yes. So the, the cultural part of it is the construct is the kind of world that it functions in. You know, the art world functions in a particular economic and social and ideological construct. And commercial art functions in another one. But it all functions in the in the same culture. Well, it all and, and it, it all, all functions history, right? And it all functions with an end, uh, with a means to an end being financial, to some degree. Well, yeah, of course. You know, you know, we're, we have to make a living, I guess, and we live in a in a world where there has to be some exchange for, uh, you know, uh, work for food, right? <laughs> well, yes, yes. I mean, obviously, in, in the though, basic way. So we all live in an economic world. So yeah, even art has to have an economic basis. Although I, I understand that, I don't know exactly how many years it was, um, but several decades ago you decided that you were no longer going to produce graphic design in exchange for financial Oh, right. Financial I became reward. a tested level designer. And that was, a, that was something that, you know, I came from Detroit, and my father was an auto worker, and my parents were European immigrants. and um, So I, you know, was well-versed in the whole uh, uh, union business and Walter Ruther and that whole um, this idea of 30 and out, where an auto worker or an industrial worker would work for 30 years and then the company would retire them, and another worker would have an opportunity, and the, also the original worker wouldn't burn out like industrial workers were burnt out before. Mm -hmm. Of course, this is what's causing General Motors now to go bankrupt. But anyway, that idea, so I thought, hey, it's the same thing, I'll 30 and out. So I spent 30 years in the professional business, just happened that way. But anyway, so. And I thought, so I'll, I'll become an exit level designer, and I won't compete anymore with the next generation. I'll give another, another, the next generation a chance to do the work to make the money, and I'll go into education or my own work. We'll and, teach the next you know, generation. I'll work because of, you know, now I can collect Social Security, and I got a little teaching job. But 
you know, you start out as an entry-level designer and an emerging designer, and then you're a mid-career designer, you have a mid-career crisis, and you have, a, you know, your success and whatnot. So there's a time also when you can kind of become an exit-level designer and take yourself out of the competition if you're lucky and don't need to worry about it anymore. So not that I'm rich, but, you know, it's the idea of turning it over to the next generation and, and also realizing that, you know, there's no point in trying to hang on forever and also, the, the idea of denying the next generation is validity, like, you know, the Paul Rand model. What do you mean? Where he dies with bitter old man saying, you know, everything that's being done now is crap and, you know, this kind of, you know, after me the deluge, right? The modernists <laughs> had that idea, the American modernists especially, that you know, they, they had all the answers and that, you know, what they were doing should should be forever. So they resisted the whole change to postmodernism, to computer, to... Anyway, well, I didn't want to be—I didn't want to be that kind of old man. So I figured <laughs> this is the perfect way to, to still function mm-hmm. and yet not function, right? So, well, you're functioning. You're teaching the next generation well, yeah, of designers. Of but I'm not competing with them. I mean, I don't—I don't do any commercial work. So I actually haven't done, other than a few exceptions, any commercial work for 20 years. Now, but luckily, I didn't have to either because I have a teaching job, and you know, I you know, did well during my 30 years. You know, bought a house and all that kind of stuff. Right. <laughs> um, now, what do you think of the current uh, work that's going on by working graphic designers? Oh, I think it's wonderful. You know, the only thing I can say about it is mm-hmm. what I always say. You know, I just I just use their own language, and I say uh, whatever. It's all good. But do you mean it? Yeah, because I can't. Because I don't really want to judge it anymore, right? Because they they work in their own time with their own issues and their own um, experiences, right? So they are, they're I'm as I said, I'm a product of a of a culture and environment uh, from years ago. So you know that that's when I kind of came of age, and that's when I had my career. So, um, but the the and the the young generation now has its uh, you know its say, and I don't necessarily always understand what it is, but I certainly support it, so I say, well, it must be okay because they're doing it. And uh, So, of course, there are values to work. You know, some work is more interesting than other work. Some work is more... Uh, I mean, on the other hand, you can't tell in the present, right? So only the future kind of sorts things out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, that's also part of postmodern pluralism. You know, everything is, in a way, it's all good in its context, and uh, we're also at this point where, you know, whatever... You know, if necessary, you can do. There aren't these kinds of restrictions anymore, like the modernist idea of a certain kind of essentialism or truth. Or well, let me ask you another question. Yes. You enrolled in the graduate program at Cranbrook, Cranbrook Academy of Art in 1985 at the age of 48. That's right. What made you decide to do that? Empty nest syndrome. Really? Your kids went off to That's fame right. and fortune of their own? College, so I said. You know, I've got empty nest syndrome, so I better go off to college, too. So we all went off to college, and, uh, yeah, I was a single parent. I had two daughters, and um, uh, so, uh, I mean, the other reason was to kind of legitimize myself because, you know, by that, by the 80s, you know, just being a commercial artist from Detroit, you know, with no, uh, uh, with nothing but a trade school education, you know, there is a kind of this business about, you know, academia, even though I've been involved with Cranbrook for like 15 years, I knew the McCoys since before they were even at Cranbrook, and um, 
so it was a perfect kind of time to say, all right, well, I'm, I'm going to retire from commercial practice. I've done my duty. I've sent my kids to college. Now I'll use the remaining money, send myself to college, and then, uh, uh, you know, we'll all start over from there. And it's true, we did. I moved to California. My one daughter's in New York, and the other one stayed in Michigan for a while. Now she's also in California. But. Now, um, so that was the, that was, those are the two reasons, empty nest syndrome and this kind of idea of legitimizing myself. And actually, you know, the minute I went to graduate school, came out, went to CalArts, started teaching, uh, all of a sudden I became quote-unquote famous, you know, for work that I've been doing all along. <laughs> now, but what, what made you feel like you had some sort of lack in your education? I mean, I understand. I didn't. I didn't have so, any lack in it at all. So um, then what I had a terrific education that, uh, you know, in the 50s that, uh, you know, uh, allowed me uh, 30 years of kind of an experimental practice, an alternative career, which, again, in my lectures, I, you know, have three or four slides that, that uh, you know, show 30 years of professional work, and then all the rest of it is experimental work. Um, uh, investigative work, speculative work that I did in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And so when I went to Cranbrook, uh, you know, I, I um, stopped doing commercial work and did this kind of, you know, experimental work, or what do you want to call it, full-time. Uh, and, you know, graduate school allows you. <laughs> so is that, <laughs> that wonderful luxury? And that also just the energy of, you know, young people and all of that was really great. Right. You know, an idea... A 19-year-old can have an idea as, as easily as a 50-year-old, right? Or a better mm -hmm. one, maybe. So the experience and skill and all that doesn't necessarily uh, make for better concepts or ideas or understanding. Uh, you know, they're kind of two different things. Now, what was, what was the, how did the, the professors treat you there? Well, very nicely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I assumed I that they were nice. For all that time. How did you know so them beforehand? Like, uh, it was also my local graduate school. I mean, I could walk there from where I lived. Uh. And so what was the experience like? I mean, did you were you in classes with people that were all much younger than you? Were there well, yeah, people that were the same age as you? There. You know, the, the average age for graduate school is like mid-20s. Right? Yeah. So most of the people were in their mid-20s. I think the average age is like 27, 28 is the average. So... You get a few people that might be up into 30. The rest of them are in their 20s. Uh, graduate school doesn't always have people who come out of undergrad and immediately go to graduate school. Frequently, people work for several years before they go to grad school. But still, I was way older than anyone else. And, uh, you know, I'd already been an influence on, on Cranbrook for years before that. But still, it doesn't, you know, that doesn't change anything, right? Uh, history is a kind of continuum, so... What you do 10 years before is different from what you do 10 years later or 10 years hence. Now, were the students intimidated by you? Did, no, did most of them know who so. you were? I think I was more intimidated by them. Why? <laughs> well, because they were young and, you know, and energetic and cool and, you know, were really kind of in tune like younger people are with a lot of things. So, you know, the older you get, um, the more you kind of uh, feel that, you know, you're getting old. And, you know. Now, why did you stay there to teach? Why did you end up moving to Los Angeles? Oh, well, I got a job. Well, you, I'm sure you could have gotten a job at Cranbrook. No, no, you couldn't, actually, because Cranbrook only has one faculty. Uh-huh. Um, and so I already got the job, actually, before I even went to graduate school, because Lorraine Wilde, who I knew, who was also a Cranbrook person from years before, got a job at the 
CalArts heading the program in 1985. So when I went to Cranbrook, she said, oh, you know, when you're, when you're done, I'm going to need people at CalArts, so come out. So actually, I did. Uh, you know, I, I, my kids were in college, so I actually put up the house for rent and moved to California to take the teaching job. So I thought, oh, I'll just try it. And, you know, 20 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> And do you enjoy it? Yeah. Do you still enjoy it? Do you oh, still feel like inspired? I'm retired from uh, full-time teaching. I just have one, once a week I have a graduate seminar. Mm -hmm. so it's pretty easy. Uh, it's more therapy than teaching. Because <laughs> at my age, I feel that that's, you know, my experience, my history is 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 uh, what I can really give, more so than, you know, I'm not really in, into, you know, current uh, digital work and all that, although I'm a great advocate of it, and the students all do it. Now, if you're a great uh, advocate of teach, it... I don't teach my own kind of handwork at all. In fact, uh, ironically enough, in all these years, uh, nobody's ever come to me and said, hey, how do you do this? You know, oh, really? Because that was going to be my next question. How do you go about doing the work that you do? I just do it the way it was always done. You know, it's the old-fashioned commercial art skills, you know, where you use colored pencils, uh, uh, lips guides, uh, uh, um, ink. Uh, <laughs> I use a lot of... I don't. I don't use rapidographs anymore. I use ballpoint pens. When you use the the four color big pens. Yeah, I don't use the four color one in my sketchbooks because you know I get four colors and I, all I need is a little yellow pencil and I've got a kind of full range, which is great for a for a sketchbook that you can carry around with you, right? So you can mm -hmm. always have your a book and a and a pen and a, a little pencil, so you can you can sit there and you know when I'm waiting for a movie to start, I can I can doodle. When you're old, you can go to the mall and <laughs> have a matinee and go to the, you know, the movie. Milkshake. And like that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> now, After you, all, I am retired. Yes, uh, yeah. Model design. Yeah, you're hardly working at all. Yeah, yeah, right. And I travel around. I love uh, the American road. I've been on the, on, you know, I grew up during the beatnik period, and so I hit the road myself in 1960, drove across the country for the first time, and, you know, I'm really hooked on driving around America, so that's that's what also, um, I came up with those uh, photographs, I started taking pictures with the Polaroids right. in 1984 or 5, I think, um, and then, uh, you know, I had 3,000 of these little pictures, uh, that became the book letters of America. And are you still working with the Polaroid now? Yeah, well, it's, they don't make them anymore, those cameras are long gone, and so they break all the time, so it's hard to keep them running. But they, you can still buy the film, right. uh, 600 film, but it's hard to get that old kind of camera that I that I used because that camera allowed you to um, um, focus. It wasn't a, um, it, it was a, a more commercial camera that they made in the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, so you're oh, still yeah, taking, I still occasionally use it. Do you still, are, you, are you still doing photography? Are you still taking photos of oh, yeah, the digital camera? Oh, yeah, I still camera? like taking little Polaroid pictures. I still haven't gone digital. <laughs> no. And you still aren't. Although my cell phone is up uh, tomorrow, so I could I could actually trade it in for a camera phone. <laughs> yes, that would be interesting to see what you could do with the camera. But then I thought, how the hell would I use the thing? I don't even know how to. Anyway. Um, but you and you're still not using the computer at all. You don't use it. No, at all. I just use it for email, and I've I've learned how to scan, and you know I I did make that website, and but I had an intern to help me, and then. Right. Uh, uh, but I do know how to, you know, kind of put stuff up. Now, do you... But I don't use the computer to make my work. 
And is there a reason for that? Is it because you don't know how, or is it because you just don't believe in it? No, by the time uh, the computer came out, I thought, oh, I'm too too, uh, uh, old to learn, and it was kind of difficult. And then I thought, and then, of course, I would never catch up because, you know, the the whole problem with a computer is that it's a, um, you know, it's an intelligent tool, so, you know, it grows. Whereas my color pencil that I have, you know, my color pencils and my pens and my ellipse guides, are, some of them are, you know, 40, 50 years old, and they don't grow. <laughs> They're still the same. So you have to get better and better with them, but the tool doesn't change any. Whereas with a computer, as you know, or any designer knows, you have mm-hmm. to constantly, you know, keep up with your tool because it gets smarter and more difficult. Or on the other hand, it allows you more, more options and, so it's really a, a fabulous transition that this generation has had, you know, mm-hmm. from the analog work that I do and the um, uh, computer. And also I figured, you know, I had 30, 40 years of these skills. Why, you know, throw them away for a new tool? So I might as well just keep working on them. And actually mm-hmm. it was the smartest decision I made. Why is that? <laughs> why do you think it's a smart decision? By, do, by using, by kind of working in tandem with the computer, except by hand. You know, so I was well aware of what the computer was doing all along and kind of even anticipating what I saw was go to students and say, hey, can't you do this on the computer? Can't, can't, doesn't it do this? Couldn't you do this? Oh, oh not really. <laughs> you know, I was reading an article about you in Graphis magazine, and they referred to you as, a, and this is a quote, a sort of anti-master. Anything well, yeah. delinquent or unexpected is always deliberate. That was part of... Uh, that was part of the 80s, and actually when you say I had a great influence, had is the operative word. Oh, I don't think that's true. That was, um, you know, that was the last uh, um, vestige of, of 500 years of Gutenberg typography, and it was all deconstructed in the, in the 80s. And um, anti-mastery was this idea of taking the conceit out of fine typography or type design, uh, you know, because type design and typography became more and more masterful, right? And, and, and you know, became more and more perfect, perfectly readable, uh, these kind of perfect letter forms. And so the whole idea was, uh, which was part of deconstruction at that time, was to, was to like I said, take seat out of that, or at least for me. And so, yeah, then I became a master of the inept as, uh, as Rick Pointer called me, which I think is beautiful, or an expert at the inept. But on the other hand, my inept is all so because I'm a very slick, uh, uh, experienced commercial artist, right? I can work in any style from, mm-hmm. you know, really uh, highly crafted, skilled style to one that's, you know, uh, so inept. Well, I think, I think that your work is, is that perfect balance of, of both intellectual and experimental. And yeah. I, you know, I, in, in talking about both of these, the combination of these um, types of work, I read that, that you called the contrived loss of control anti-mastery, and this is when unexpected and unique things happen. And I think that if you can, I mean, it seems to me that if somebody can allow themselves to be in a position where they are losing control, that it's really interesting to see what happens in those moments, you know, aside from radio technology. Yeah. <laughs> But that's an old. That's also an old idea in, in um, contemporary art or modern art, right? The surrealists were interested in this idea also of, of losing control, right? Automatic writing, exquisite uh, uh, corpse kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. that was also part of my education. This idea of um, you know trying to 
trying to get outside yourself. And that's, of course, what part of experimental formalism is, too, right? How to, how to go into the subconscious. By, in the mid-50s, that was a big, big kind of idea, mm-hmm. tapping the subconscious. And, and, of course, now we know that subconscious is just a, another kind of construct, right? Well, uh, what isn't know, another kind of construct? to it that was developed by the artists who, you know, tried to portray the subconscious. Uh, and use these kinds of exercises. Now, is there anything that you feel that you haven't experienced that you'd like to still be able to experience as an artist? Anything that you haven't done that you'd like to still be able well, to no, do? Well, no, what I'm doing now is what I call my counterfactual uh, history. So at my age, um, I decided, you know, after exit-level designer, the next thing is bad painter. <laughs> uh, you know, the kind of when you're, you know, in the... Uh, uh, old folks home and you know you're you're painting and you have these you know senior shows down at the mall um so you know bad painter so i'm going to be a bad painter now but i and so what i'm doing is just saying all right i'm not an artist of 2006 i'm an artist who came of age in the late 50s so i'm an artist of you know 1960 so i'm going to do a counterfactual history so instead of going to uh work as a commercial artist in 1957, I went to, say I went to art school and became a painter. Uh, so now I can just make all these paintings and drawings and whatever I would have done is in my kind of alternative history or my counterfactual history. So now I can do anything and just say, well, I guess that's what I would have done in 1962 or 1971 or whatever as an artist or a painter. So that's my next, uh, that's my career now. Oh, well, I mean, one of the things I love doing. But I only do it as, as a series of drawings. I've never actually made paintings out of, it, out of them. Uh, although, uh, it does, they almost don't need to be paintings, right? They're almost like, this would have been my history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you're still doing all your sketchbooks. Hmm? You're still doing all yeah, your sketchbooks. Yeah. How many well, sketchbooks? I have a whole body of work that actually is a kind of art, I guess, or an art practice that actually comes out of uh, commercial art, you know, that's really about graphic design, about lettering, about, you know, our rich history that we have, this rich history of a kind of commercial art vernacular. You know, all those wonderful books that Stephen Heller's been putting out for mm-hmm. years, mm-hmm. you know, these little books of fabulous commercial art stuff, and he's probably the person, the ultimate expert on commercial art, you know, in the 20th century, and all mm-hmm. these kind of anonymous, forgotten commercial artists. Well, I and understand. I'm here in his library, and well, I mean, oh, with the books he put out, yeah, exactly. fabulous, and in the, the kind of richness of these, uh, you know, kind of anonymous commercial artists. Now, uh, are you still collect? I, I understand that you were, you are, or were a voracious collector of found graphics, you know, posters, yeah, so, leaflets, flyers. I, I, I collect the. I like to tear things down. <laughs> I have a huge collection of just, uh, you know, eight and a half by eleven Xerox sheets that people put up. So the kind of things you find on lampposts. Yeah, right. When you're in a school, it's perfect because there's tons of them all the time. But even at that, I only pick certain ones that I like, and you you get thousands of them. So that's a kind of vernacular, too. And the same with the photographs. It's kind of a a vernacular. You just go out and take pictures of signs. But in my case, I'm only taking fragments and... It's also about how lettering looks when it's photographed. So it's a diff- I'm not trying to really document uh, vernacular lettering. A lot of people have done that beautifully. You know, lots of books on, that document uh, vernacular lettering. Right. No, I actually... If you look at my book, it's all just fragments and bits. And yes. Odd angles. And they're really snapshots. You know, they're, so 
some are a little out of focus, some of them are, are too dark, too light. But that gives them the charm, this kind of look of photography. Mm-hmm. I, I think I, I read that you referred to the letter forms as fake avant-garde poetry. Oh, no. Uh, well, some of my stuff is, yes. My sketchbook um, uh, stuff where I have all this kind of writing mm-hmm. um, that, you know, is a kind of wordplay. And, uh, yeah, that, you know, if you actually read it, it would kind of sound like fake avant-garde poetry. <laughs> Although the real look of it is, again, you know, this mix of endless styles uh, of, you know, these these letter forms and the and the you know the connotations that letter forms have. What is it about letter forms that intrigue you so much? Well, uh, first of all, it's a, there are twenty six of them, so it's kind of finite forms, right? Mm-hmm. There's a, a finite group of forms that you can work with endlessly, and they have such a rich history, you know, of you know calligraphy and illuminated pages and typography and you know hand lettering and and all of that, so you know, you just and and just and as a vernacular too, you know, it's writing. Um, so and be, being a graphic designer and a, and a typographer, you know, which I actually practiced for years and years, uh, you know, I always worked with letters and now, words and sentences. Well, and yeah, that was my next question. Is is it just letters, or do you have as much of an affection for words and sentences and text? Well, yeah, of course, uh, words, sentences, text, but. Not so much the meanings, right? Because when you're yeah. when you're a graphic designer, it's just, you're not really concerned as much with what it says. You're, it's usually a given. Well, here are the headlines. Here's the text. You know, uh, set it, um, pick a typeface. Uh, you know, arrange it. Uh, you, you're not the writer of the of the work. So you, it, it, in the end, it becomes kind of abstraction, right? It becomes letter spacing, line spacing, word spacing, uh, typefaces. Uh, Connotations, uh, arrangement, layout, you know, all of that. Yes, well, I always it's, find it's it becomes a kind of a formal practice where, you know, it doesn't have so much to do with what it says, uh, even though you're interpreting what it says in a in a typographic manner, but not the author of it. Well, Ed, we're going to have to take a short break uh, right. to let our listeners know that. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Ed Fella. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. And now, part two of Adobe's Voices of Design series, a documentary that brings together different voices from the design community to share and exchange. Today's topic is sustainability. Enjoy. The power of designers and their influence on sustainability. Let's listen to what the designers at the Compost Modern 2006 conference have to say on this topic in Adobe's Voices of Design series. Here's Michael Schwab, Schwab Design. Design does influence people, and whether it's subconsciously or or obviously, design does mean a lot, and and, and it leaves a lasting impression. Paul Sappho, Institute for the Future. Designers are thought leaders, and they're action leaders. Designers have got to get this right, and they've got to define it right, because if they get it wrong, all their wrong ideas are going to be embedded in everything everybody else uses. Mark Willard. 
IDO. Designers have been shaping culture for as long as there's been design. We have a huge opportunity, and I think before long it's going to be an obligation or a mandate to figure out how to solve these projects, these issues, these desires with sustainably relevant solutions. You have been listening to the Voices of Design series brought to you by Adobe Systems. The challenge of change comes as ramped up due to the advent of information age and the interconnectedness of the global community. In a high-tech world, the ability to embrace change, adapt, and respond accordingly is key to personal and professional success. Talking Change with Ann Powers, airing every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, explores the hows, whys, and what to do when faced with change. Embrace the new reality, adopt transition into your personal power portfolio, and tune into Talking Change with Ann Powers every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific time right here on the bottom line of business talk voice america business the bottom line in business talk voice america business we're back with design matters with debbie millman if you have a question for debbie feel free to call us at 866-472-5790 once again here's the host of design matters debbie millman Welcome back. It is 3.47 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Melman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Melman, and my guest today is designer and educator, Ed Fella. Um, Ed, before the break, we were talking a lot about vernacular in design, and I had a question for you about... I didn't know um, we were coming from the Empire State Building. How cool is that? <laughs> Not that <More> cool. vernacular. <laughs> right, it's true. Um, oh, I, I want to let our listeners know that during the break, Ed and I were talking about the uh, misfortune of having our technical difficulties, and apropos of my... Monologue, my introducing monologue, Ed said that it was his fault that we were having technical difficulties because he always has problems technically and it's always his fault. So yeah, I no, it is, it's actually, yeah, because I totally agree with the computer and the whole digital uh, world, but it doesn't somehow agree with me. I don't understand it. Well, uh, I, 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 I seem so to... I'm so good to it. I advocate it all the time. I think it's... The most fabulous thing that ever happened, but somehow it doesn't agree with me. Well, why do you think people always think that things are their fault? What is this psychological? I don't know. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Well, you think case, it's I, your I, fault? It is my fault for never really, you know, learning. <laughs> but, <laughs> I think. Technical, so. But even if you were the biggest technical technical yeah, geek right, in the world, I do problem. not think we would. <laughs> I do yeah. not think that would have stopped our technical problems in any case. Um, I, I read that you think that your style is a natural product of Detroit, the city of the vernacular. And can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, First of all, do you still feel that way? No, well, it was just sort of the idea of the, you know, coming out of the Midwest, this kind of industrial city, uh, which was, you know, pretty straightforward. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of it there. And, and it's actually a product of, of not so much Detroit, but... For me, it's a product of being an American. Uh, you know, my parents were immigrants, so the whole thing, you know, and everything was more wonderful in Europe. And, of course, our whole culture is about, you know, Europe is where everything wonderful in art and design comes from, right? So, and then, uh, and sure enough, in the 70s, you know, we got all this wonderful Dutch uh, design and the, and the Swiss modernism and, you know, again, endless kind of European stuff. So I thought, what the hell? What do we have? So I thought, well, what, what do we have in America is the vernacular, you know, this <laughs> wonderful kind of energy, you know, the pop world, the folk world, whatever you want to call it, 
cycle from the vernacular world. Um, and so, and also that's what we've kind of imported all over the world anyway with our sort of pop culture business. Uh, even though I'm not involved or never was in pop music or culture, but still, so I thought, well, I'll just start using the American vernacular because I'm driving around the country all the time. I love America. I love the look of it, especially from my years of driving around it, you know, being on the road, so to speak, all these little towns and, and even the big cities. And so, so the lettering, the signs, uh, you know, even commercial ones, hand ones, all of them. If you look in the book, it's a whole variety. I'm not just looking for, you know, charming lettering done by a, you know, an amateur making a sign, but, you know, also professional signs. And I especially like, you know, sign writer uh, lettering, show card lettering, you know, the kind of people who do the who do the signs for all over the country. Oh, absolutely. Uh, which used to be called show card lettering. Uh, and, you know, that used to, uh, used to do it in windows and on windows. And mm-hmm. A lot mm-hmm. of it now is probably digital. but On oak tag. Yeah, so that was that. So I thought, you know, there's that's what America's really about is that kind of rawness, that kind of energy. And so, on the other hand, we're also, you know, we're also very smart and refined. And my model for that is Charles Ives, the great American composer, who, you know, at the turn of the century, you know, used the vernacular music to do his really innovative experimental work. That was, his, and now, of course, is considered as avant-garde and as uh, as uh, interesting as anything done in Europe by Schoenberg and Stravinsky and others. But on the other hand, he was not a naive. You know, he went to um, Yale School of Music. He was he, he certainly was very um, involved and in, in, uh, aware of the high culture and the avant-garde culture, as I was too, and mm-hmm. am because of my education and, and uh, you know, interest. Let's talk about your book. Let's talk about Letters on America. Um, you had 3,000... Photographs. You put together this extraordinary book. Each page, for any of our listeners that might not be familiar with the work, has nine photographs on each page. How did you put those? By the way, I didn't do that. I I have to say I couldn't deal with three thousand pictures, and I couldn't edit them. I used to just tape them up randomly. Well, my wife, your wife Lucy Bates, she she did that. Yes, took all those pictures and edited down to I don't know. 1,200 or whatever was in the book and made the pages and made the, you know, kind of categories and, you know, try to make a kind of structure out of it. Although it's still meant to be a flip book, you know, there are no page numbers in it. Yes. So, and I, the, the American version of it, uh, they made a hardbound version. The original European version um, and German and English version were uh, softbound, so you could, it was really like a flip book that you could just bend and flip through and open up at any point. Now, so, uh, did that, you have that's actually how the book is structured? Did you have veto power when Lucy showed you the layouts? Did you? Well, yeah. I mean, I would always say, "Oh, you can't take that out." I mean, <laughs> you know, I couldn't use all three thousand, but on the other hand, every one I wanted to have in, so it was always a, now, <laughs> a battle you... of saying, "No, you can't use all the pictures, so you have to." You know, you have to. I just have, you have to, to use these. I can't use those. <laughs> <laughs> now, did your wife go with you on the trips across America to take the picture, no, or did no, you do this well, alone? Easily, but not mostly. I I did it myself. I I oh, although I have gone, you know, across the country with kids and wives and all sorts of things with friends. But I I really like solitary traveling. Also, again, that's from my my youth and my beatnik period when you kind of hit the road. Mm-hmm. So you know, you just get in a car in Detroit. You know, I, I in fact, my first road trip across America was not 
like beatniks in, in uh, you know, uh, hitching rides in trains, but I drove across in my 1957 Corvette. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Commercial artist and could easily buy a Corvette. Of course, they only cost $3,000 back in 1958. So. What kind of car do you have now? Well, now I have a Honda. Uh-huh. What kind of a Honda? An SUV? <laughs> or You do? And so where did you stay when you traveled? What kind of places well, did you stay in? Stay in, you know, when meandered around, I would stay in just tons of little motels all over the country. And, you know, in, in my younger days, I would camp sometimes or, or I sometimes even slept the... Uh, you know, on the roadside or in the car or I don't, in a rest stop and just moved on. So it was, it was all sorts of things, sometimes in campgrounds, tents, you know. What are your favorite things? the little motels uh, that were all around the place. Uh, Do you have a... fairly cheap when you're just driving around. When was the last time you did one of these trips? Oh, uh, uh, two years ago. Last year I actually went across the country for the first time in a long time on a train, which was really a fabulous you know, they uh, still have trains. There. Oh, oh, yeah, so one of the sleeper trains, the train yeah. And glide you across. The only I problem think is you can't take any pictures of signs. Well, it's very old school and, and very romantic, I think, being on a train and yeah, yeah. Going, going across country. So the last couple of, well, the last one, last summer I went on a train. It was fun. I hadn't done it for like 40 years. So. Hey, do you ever feel insecure about anything? No, I'm too old. You know, at really? my age, you know. I'm not insecure anymore. Do you have any regrets? <laughs> no. I had a wonderful life, actually. My okay. only regret is that, um, you know, the world, uh, for all old people, the world always seems to be going to hell in a handcart, right? So you think, oh, my kids, my grandkids, uh, future generations are going to have it so difficult, right, with mm-hmm. global warming and, you know, economic collapse and all this horrible stuff that's going to happen. And gasoline's going to cost, you know, $5 a gallon. And it's already costing in California $4 a gallon. So, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, just, and I think, wow, I've had a wonderful, uh, um, you know, almost 70 years uh, when, you know, basically I I missed the Vietnam War. I missed the Second World War. I missed the Korean War. Mm-hmm. I missed the Gulf Wars. Uh, so... And, you know, the, the economy was fairly good, so I could practice as a commercial artist. And, you know, I've had, a, I've had a, good, a good run, I have to say. So I'm a very, I don't have any regrets about that. Do you, um, do you find I, I just hope for the next generation they have as, a, you know, as secure a time as I've had, you know, in terms of being able to do your work. Mm-hmm. Do you uh, get involved in politics? I know that you did a poster for some fundraising for victims of Katrina. Which yeah, is quite that was beautiful. Some, that was another kind of internet thing. Somebody sent me an email saying, "Would you uh, um, do a poster?" They have a bunch of designers, I guess, did posters. So I, I printed up one of my my little flyer posters and sent them and signed them. You know, and sent them to the guy. And I, I guess they, I don't even know what happened to those things. I guess they auctioned them off, or sold them, or something. Um, uh, I think they were. I think they were um, auctioned kind of them to raise money. Right? Yeah. Do you do you get involved in? In more government politics? No. By choice? No, I mean I, I don't. What, you don't what seek do you mean? it out. I don't. Uh, I don't really. Political work posters or nobody comes to me and says, "Hey, uh, do something." <laughs> I haven't got any. I don't have any clients that come and say, "Hey, you know, we need this or that." So, what's the next thing you want to do, Ed? Well, I, I just said I'm, I'm. You know, the next thing for me at my age is my my. Um, Bad painting career, right? My oh, you're bad, yes. My counterfactual yes. art history. 
And are you going? To, are you planning on showing those no, paintings I, I, anywhere? No, actually, I'm going to Poland uh, in a couple of weeks. They're having an exhibition. I got them all stacked up, the photographs from the book, uh, and I'm about to mail them out, uh, shipping to Poland, and then I'm going to Poland in the, on the May 14th to give a lecture. They're going to be exhibited in a gallery in Poland, and then I'm going to a few other schools in Poland. So I'll be in Poland for a week and a half or so, and uh, uh, you know, with the, with the photographs. Um, so yeah, I still I still do lots of you know, lecture things, and I, I like talking to students. So I usually do AIDA things for uh, you know student groups. Mm -hmm. I just was down in Long Beach for the student AIGA and up in St. Louis of Dispo for the student AIGA. Uh, so, you know, I, I, uh, I enjoy talking to students. Well, uh, Ed. And also, I, I, I would say by mythologizing my own past, which I've just been doing for an hour, you know, I give hope for the next generation for their futures. Hopefully. Absolutely. Well, certainly to, to this interviewer, you certainly have. Um, anyway, it's hard to talk without the work. Usually, I you know lecture. I'm showing slides of the work. <laughs> I think it's wonderful to do that, though. And in, in many ways, you kind of have to talk about what is behind yeah, the work. And, and I enjoy work. that. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, we've come to the end of our broadcast right. today, and I'd like to thank you so much for yeah. joining us. Well, thank you. Um, I'd like to give a special thanks to our sponsors, Adobe and Nina Paper. I'd like to thank the staff and my partners at Sterling, especially Lisa Grant and Jen Seinman. Joining me next week, Ed Fellow is talking about him, Steve Heller, and Veronique Vienne. Thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.